Hello, and welcome to the Resilient Life Podcast. Resilient Life is part of peakprosperity.com. It's where we focus on practical and actionable knowledge for building a better future. I'm your host, Adam Taggart. Many of those looking to live with greater resilience dream of owning productive farmland that's managed sustainably. Now, in the past, we've profiled funds like Farmland LP that enable folks to become directly invested in farmland like this. But many aren't interested in simply being passive investors. They want to become farmers, to work the land themselves, to grow food to feed their families and their local community. From firsthand knowledge, having in the past been a part owner of a CSA, it's rewarding work and a worthy pursuit, but it's hard. Farming demands more time and toil than most jobs out there. And mother nature's unpredictability always finds a way to upend your best laid plans. So, how does one succeed at running a successful small farming operation? Today, we're joined by Tim Young, founder of Small Farm Nation, which offers farmers proven practical guidance for growing their farm businesses. His first and most important advice, successful small farming is 20% about growing and 80% about marketing to customers. From his firsthand experience, Tim has observed that it's the business side that farms live and die by. And from my own work with small producers in California's uh, Sonoma County, where I live, I 100% agree with this. But most farmers, especially new ones, are undereducated and underexperienced in key business skills. Tim's mission is to correct this knowledge deficiency, which is why he created the Small Farm Nation Academy, a curriculum and knowledge center that teaches farmers key skills like marketing, accounting, customer management, pricing, handling insurance, sales strategy, and more. Tim knows what he's talking about. He built and operates an award-winning artisan cheese business. But before doing that, he spent 25 years closing large marketing deals in the tech industry. Then he founded an Inc. 500 company. He's learned firsthand which business fundamentals are necessary for small farms to thrive. Tim, thanks so much for joining us today. I think a lot of folks are going to be interested in what you have to tell us. Thanks, Adam. It's my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. Oh, gosh. So it's a real pleasure. And I know that you interviewed uh, Chris for a podcast uh, for the Small Farm Nation, and um, I know he really enjoyed that experience, so we're very happy to return the favor today. Yeah, that was one of our most popular episodes last year. I encourage everyone to check that out. I, I think a lot of us really admire what you guys are doing in terms of helping people to become more resilient and uh, you know, take preparedness a little bit more seriously. Well, thanks. I think it's a little bit of a mutual uh, admiration society here because we're big fans of what you're doing, too. So, you know, Tim, why don't we start here by just giving our readers a little bit more background into how you transitioned from the world of high tech into becoming an expert on small scale farming? Yeah, farming's not in my background um, at all. I didn't grow up on a farm. I, you know, had never really, for the most part, you know, I had never petted a cow or seen a chicken too much close up. I, I lived in North Georgia growing up and had seen some of that from afar. But as soon as I got out of school, you know, I moved up to Massachusetts and got into the world of um, business to business marketing uh, for many years on the financial services, mutual fund side, working with very large uh, mutual fund companies. And for a dozen years or so after that, on the technology side, working with tech giants who would outsource a variety of marketing services to either a firm I used to work for when I worked for a Fortune 500 company or later when I founded my own business. Um, they were all clients of mine as well. And, you know, I did that for a long time and was pretty much like what I consider most people to be like today, disconnected uh, with, you know, from where our food comes from and from how things are produced. 
Um, you know, I was eating at restaurants. I was shopping at grocery stores. I was hiring someone to change the oil in my car. I mean, I was hiring someone to paint the rooms, things I could do, but I had kind of abdicated all of my skill set, uh, you know, to, uh, other so-called experts. And my wife and I had this awakening, mm, 2005, 2006, kind of in that time frame. And the awakening was kind of thanks to, you know, a lot of the work that Michael Pollan and the omnivorous dilemma had done and other people that, you know, just increased our awareness of, geez, you don't know where your food is coming from. Um, and you're, you're totally disconnected with, you know, the source of your food. And that really alarmed us. Um, and when we, when we discovered that, we probably should have done something sensible, like, you know, go to a farmer's market and support other farms. But instead, you know, at the time we were living on a golf course uh, north of Atlanta, you know, really nice, you know, you know, you know 5,000 square foot home, typical type of, you know, big thing. You know, we did something that was a little bit crazy. We decided to buy 100 acres of land, move about two and a half hours away out to the country. And that led us to the world of farming. I mean, all because we wanted to become more connected with where our food came from and more connected with preparedness skills that we recognized that we had lost sight of. Wow. So um, that transition is uh, certainly very similar to what, what Chris did and, and to a certain extent what I did myself as well. How long did it take you to come up to speed on the farming side of things? Yeah. You know, at first, believe it or not, uh, Adam, I didn't even the plan wasn't to be a farmer. I mean, I spent my first few months uh, trying to figure out, well, we want to be in the country. So what are we going to do out here? And I contemplated all kinds of business models because that's what we entrepreneurs do. You know, we, you know, just conjure up all kinds of ways that we can make money in this new world that we have. But the thing that I was passionate about that really troubled me was that the land that we bought was just really run down. Uh, It had been farmed maybe 20 years before, but when we got it, it was overgrown with, you know, all kinds of weeds and brambles and big boulders and rocks out into what used to be the pastures. And it just, I mean, it sounds a little bit corny, but it just called to us to really kind of reheal that land and restore health to that soil. And so I started reading a lot. And my wife did as well. She started reading about gardening and all the modern things. And I started reading the old books, you know, 100 years old books by Sir Albert Howard and authors like that who talked about how to restore health to the soil. And, you know, I learned that nature never farms without livestock. I mean, you need multiple species out there working um, in a symbiotic dance, if you will, to, to breathe health into the land. And that compelled me to say, well, I'm going to get some cows. And we started with a herd of about 25 Murray Gray cattle. And I said, I'll start a grass-fed beef operation. And we started with our first chicken was we, we, we got 400 chickens and built a small brood house and decided that we would have, you know, laying hens out there following very much after Joel Salatin's model. He was a great inspiration to us and many other people. And so we said, we'll, we'll, we'll do something similar to that. And before you know it, we had, you know, 100 Katahdin sheep, maybe 150 Osabal Island pigs in the woods. And we're doing all kinds of layers of farming out there. And that's when I discovered, wow, you know, you've, it's not just restoring health to the land, but you've got to get customers for this. And I realized then how important the marketing background I had was because, you know, you can, you can, you can do all the farming you want to, but without customers to buy your products, what's the point? Right, right. And, and we'll get into this in a moment as well. But I live in an area where there's a lot of small scale producers and, um, you know, I think most of them 
you know, they come into the the practice or, or into the um, the project of, of you know deciding to create a, a small farm um, from the farming side, and they they sort of have a if I build it they will come, or if I grow it they will come mentality, right. and um, yeah, they learn quite quickly that the the whole operation part of it is just half the the equation. Uh, the second half is how do you actually get the product to market, and that's as I said in the intro, that's really from my experience of, of where I've seen small farms live and die. So, okay. So you gave us, you know, kind of a, a background, how you sort of became this, this accidental uh, agricultural entrepreneur. Um, uh, what made you decide to switch from doing your own work on your own property to um, creating a resource for, and a platform for small farmers really everywhere, you know, and, and who specifically did you create uh, the, uh, uh, small farm nation platform for is it is it the person who has a small farm and wants to be better about it or is it somebody like yourself who had no background and is thinking about getting into into it for the first time well i mean i have a, a real strong passion for both local food and and seeing local food communities develop and also for any any type of small scale agriculture. I mean, that can be growing food, but it also can be making soap or fiber or crafts or, or whatever, um, any of those kind of things. And, you know, when, when, we, when we were operating our farm, we used to do farm tours and have a whole bunch of people come out. And one of the things that I noticed back then, Adam, when I had the farm uh, tours and when I had the farm podcast, was how many people wanted to live vicariously through us. They were looking to do something like this they were they were almost looking for the courage to how do I start a farm or how do I run my farm and can you make money farming that's the question that we got more than any other question out there so I noticed that there are a lot of people that just lacked the business skills to make a to make a farmer or quite frankly any small business successful and one of the things that I learned Adam is that the skills that are required to make a small business to business marketing firm successful aren't really any different than the skills required to make a small diversified livestock farm or an artisan cheese business successful. They really are one and the same. So the Small Farm Nation Academy, who I'm targeting, is any type of direct marketing farmer. I'll use direct marketing because I don't think what I'm offering is as much help to the commodity farmers. It's, it's, it's for people that are trying to go to market directly and not be caught in the commodity business. So that includes farmers. It includes soap makers, cheese makers, equestrian sites, breweries, wineries, distilleries. Anyone who is using the land to create an agricultural product, um, I'm tailoring the content to show them the steps they need to create a brand, to define their market, uh, to attract customers, uh, to choose the right go-to-market strategy, and all the things necessary to be successful with their business. Great. All right. Well, let's let's start then with that um, that person who's sort of been, you know, looking for the courage. And, and in my perspective, when I ran a CSA where we had a 350-acre property that we'd give farm tours on to. Um, you know, my experience was is that that people like you just described were, were really looking for permission to do this. Um, they were looking for you know the reasons why uh, you know, the the validation for why they they could themselves take the step to actually get into um, you know one of these these small production roles, whether it's growing something or creating something like cheese or soap or whatever. Um, you know, I, I could see when these people would come out for the farm tours that they 
they emotionally were bought in. Um, they, they so wanted to be involved with something like this. Um, and they were really just looking for the reason to be able to say, yes, I want to commit to something like this. And I, to me, it seems like that's very much maybe what you're doing through Small Farm Nation, which is connecting the dots for them to say, this actually is doable for somebody, particularly, you know, if somebody's got some some a business foundation to, to, to leverage. Um, you know, you're kind of giving them almost more than anything else, just the permission to be able to say, hey, this this is a risk worth taking. Isn't it really telling, Alan, Adam, that we have that you've had that experience? I've had that. And I've talked to so many others who have had that. There are so many people, as you say, who are looking for permission or they're looking for you to just you know, assure them, reassure them that, yes, you could make a life out of this because they're all looking for a way out of, you know, the rat race, soul sucking jobs, whatever it may be, but they don't have enough meaning in their life. And I think that they find what we're talking about here to be a meaningful life. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and we would, our farm is located about 45 minutes north of San Francisco. So we get a lot of people coming out from the city and, um, I mean, you could see it in their eyes when they'd step out of the car that, all of a sudden, just first off, they're just back in nature, which is something that, you know, when they're spending most of their day in the city um, is something that they, they, you know, I think don't realize how starved they are for it until they, they actually, you know, get out and, and stand on some dirt for a little bit. Right. But it's that reconnection to nature. It's that reconnection to the food cycle that you were talking about earlier. Um, there really is something primal about it. And of course, you know, for folks that read Peak Prosperity, and I'm sure a lot of the folks that listen to your podcast and read your blog, you know, they have a, they have a, um, you know, a, a, a intellectual appreciation as well for just the importance of having some resilience in your life. And so again, it's, it's, they're just looking for that door to be able to step through that says, you know, you can actually um, participate in this, you know, even if you have a desk job, mm-hmm. um, you know, you don't necessarily have to quit your job tomorrow to, to do some of this stuff. You could, uh, you know, partner with, with small farm, you know, small farmer or, or, um, you know, have a side business or whatnot. So I think in many ways, you know, people are just looking to be assured that it's not, uh, unattainable for them and that it's not a crazy step. Um, so it's, it's kind of fun to, to, to be, I almost kind of feel like a, a drug dealer for nature where <laughs> you know, I'd give people a little taste and tell them, you know, Hey, you know, it, it, it gets, you know, it, uh, it gets even better the more you have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well here, let's, um, let's, if you don't mind, let, let's take somebody who's listening to this podcast, who, you know, has been thinking about potentially taking a step like this, or at least dreaming about it. And, um, uh, maybe, you know, they're encouraged by listening to uh, to us here, knowing that you put together kind of a, a step-by-step programmatic uh, curriculum for them to engage with. Um, you know, what would be your advice to this person just starting out? You know, what critical areas do they need to focus on most at the start? And, uh, and what's going to be most important to their long-term success? So some of this, um, in my experience and in my belief, is very similar to any entrepreneur starting a business. And there is something strange about farming that people start a farm and they don't always view that they're starting a business. They think that they're just going to go farming. And that's a huge mistake. Uh, So the most important factor is that they make strategic choices and they plan for their farm business to succeed. And the way I try to get that across um, is one of the very first courses that I have in the Small Farm Nation Academy is I walk members through the eight, what I believe are the eight critical questions, they've got to fully answer to succeed. And, and it's, um, this is part of the uh, one-page business plan uh, that I offer them and, and help, them, help them create. I mean, and the first question is for them to define their mission, what they want to accomplish, what their farm business is, and why, why it's important. Because that leads into the next question, who is it important to? 
And once they answer that, it will help them understand, well, they can define who their customer groups are, who they want to target, whether it's a local, regional, or national market, whether it's a niche or a wide market. So they start making these strategic choices. I, this is my mission. This is the niche market I'm going after. This is who's going to care. This is why they're going to care. Once they you know, get that, then they have to identify the competition. Um, and not just the uh, direct competitors like other farmers, for example, but alternatives like grocery stores and even home gardening and home cooking. Or there's there's new entrants and new threats like Blue Apron wasn't around a few years ago. Now it is. And there's other ones on the horizon. So they have to answer those questions. And the next two questions, you know, require the farmer to define where their revenue is going to come from, what products are going to have, what their go to market strategy is going to be, what their cost structure is and their critical success factors. And all those questions lead up to the eighth and the most critical question that any entrepreneur has to answer, but particularly a farmpreneur has to answer, which is this. How is my farm business unique? And what is my one defensible competitive advantage? And how often do you hear farms, farmers talk about things like that, Adam? My defensible competitive advantage or what is my uniqueness? We don't tend to talk that way. We talk about I'm raising some cows or I'm raising some chickens or I'm making some cheese or whatever. Well, that's fine. That's a hobby if that's what you're doing. But if you want to be successful as a business, you do have to answer these questions. And my advice to the new person would be go through those eight questions, create a one page business plan. I'm not a fan of long business plans. I'm not a fan of, you know, the SWOT analysis and all the things that we often make ourselves go through. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just that we tend to get paralyzed when we see those kind of recommendations. We don't do anything. So I think you can create a really good one page business plan that will get you going. But you do have to think strategically about your farm business. Yeah, I think that's a really good structured approach. Um, you know, for a lot of our listeners, folks are going to recognize a lot of the terminology that you mentioned. But but I think for some of our listeners, you know, maybe some of what you mentioned does some, sound like a little bit of a foreign language. Um, so one question here, Tim, is, you know, I really like the simplicity of, of limiting it to the one page business plan. But um, is this something that truly anybody can do? And does Small Farm Nation, you know, kind of have templates that walk folks through all this stuff? Um, or do you really feel that someone needs to have, you know, some previous business grounding to be able to, to jump into this? Well, can anyone do it? Sure. I mean, can, you know, and anyone can play a guitar too. Can some play, play better than others? Sure. I mean, so, um, in terms of how I try to present this information, when, when they are a member of the Academy, uh, they'll, they'll see a video of me walking them through the background of why this is important. And then I go through an example of these eight questions on the one page. And then I show them, here's what you're going to have to provide. And then I give them, you know, uh, an example. I say, here's how I might answer these. And then I give them a downloadable, fillable PDF file where they can answer it on their own. But the reason I do a membership site, Adam, which is what Small Farm Nation Academy is, and the reason I didn't offer all this as a course, if I offer it as a course, people pay, you know, usually a pretty large fee, and then they take it, and then they might need help six months later, and then where's the help available to them? And what I found is that uh, the, the, the people I'm trying to help have questions on an ongoing basis. Uh, 
You know, and so in the community, in the forum, which is part of Small Farm Nation Academy, they can complete this and they can come in there and say, well, I have a question about this or is this really a defensible advantage or uh, here's how I'm defining my customer group. Does this make sense to you or whatever it may be? And I get those kind of questions as well as, you know, the other questions, which is what do you think of my logo? I'm having trouble coming up with a tagline or any other type of questions that I'm trying to help people uh, to deal with. All of those are important decisions that lead them to thinking about their farm as a business, which is the most important thing that I'm trying to get them to grasp. Stop thinking of it as a hobby. Think of it as a business the way any entrepreneur does. And then at some point, the light goes off and they start becoming very comfortable thinking this way. But I noticed that, you know, at first, Adam, many people who come into this either don't have the business skills or they do what you said earlier. They may have the business skills, but they view it like as a side thing that they have to their other job or whatever. And that's kind of the same result. It still doesn't get treated as a viable business and therefore it far too often fails. Right. Okay. Well, that's really good clarification there too. So um, it sounds like, yes, if you're, if you're already good at playing the guitar, you know, you'll be able to use a lot of the, the templates and the guidance, you know, as is. But if you're not, if you're more of a neophyte, um, A, you've, you've constructed in a way that that's, you know, hopefully bite-sized and easy with, with lots of, you know, video guidance and stuff like that. But there's also sort of, you know, mentoring slash consulting uh, help available for those that, that need more early on and all that stuff. So, and I think actually that's the, what I'm finding in the academy is that's the important part. I mean, at this point, I even offer free consultations in the academy so they can go into my video chat room once a week. It's almost like um, professor's hours, if you will, or office hours yep. that I'll keep once a week. And they can first come, first serve, reserve the time and 15-minute increments, and we'll go in and talk about whatever you have. And that's important for them because, you know, they struggle with some of these decisions and we all struggle with certain types of decisions, you know, so um, I, I'm glad to be there as a resource for them to help them on their farm journey. Well, that's great. And, you know, given my experience as an entrepreneur, you know, so much of it is is trial and error. And that's how your learning curve works. You know, you try something out and see how it works and refine from there. So, you know, having the ability to, to, to do that, you know, leverage somebody's domain expertise like yours before you take that initial uh, leap. But then once you have, uh, have somebody to go back to and, you know, help think through, okay, how, what does the next generation of this look like? Um, it, just, it just suits the entrepreneurial journey very well. So it's good to hear that, that you've set it up that way. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, let's go into this then. So you, you, you've, you've helped, um, you know, apparently a certain, you know, number of folks that have gone through, uh, small farm nation already, you know, get started. Uh, you know, what are, what are some of the pitfalls that threaten the success? Like what, what are the things that get in the way? Like when you look at the folks who, who make it versus those that don't, you know, on the, on the plus side and the negative side, what are the things that stand out as, as, um, you know, particularly telling as to how well they're going to fare? Well, people in farming or in any business fail almost always because they don't get enough customers. Now, you could say there's a problem with their profit margin, but generally it's because they have trouble getting customers. And it's certainly that way with farming. You, you, you were dead on earlier when you said people approach this as if I build it, they will come mentality. And, and honestly, I think 10 or 15 years ago, there was more truth to that because local food was newer then. But there are there's a lot of stories of people like me who have left the rat race to go out and start a farm. So that's not enough anymore. You have to be effective 
at attracting customers. So the critical mistake, the first one to, you know, sound like a broken record now is they fail to recognize that they are in fact entrepreneurs running a business and they treat it as a hobby rather than a business. That leads to, you know, bad habits and predictable results like throwing a lot of money at the farm if people have that. You know, Adam, you probably heard this, but there's an old saying that if you want to make a million dollars in farming, it's easy. Just start with $2 million. Right, and, right. And that's largely been true for many, especially those trapped in commodity farming. But it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, the reason it is that way is because people don't treat it you know, make the strategic choices to treat it as a business. Success in any business has to be planned for. But, you know, the hard part of direct market farming, as you said earlier, to me, in my experience, isn't the growing. It's the marketing and making clear strategic choices that will lead you to a path of success. Okay. So let, let's assume that somebody has put together that one-page business plan. They've come up with their competitive uh, differentiator. Uh, they've come up with their positioning. Um, they've now, you know, branded their company, got a logo, whatnot. Um, you know, what then, when we talk about the actual marketing kind of brass tacks, what are some of the techniques that you find um, uh, or channels or strategies that you find pay the biggest dividends for farmers when it comes to the marketing? Well, the, the first, the biggest thing is uh, if they're doing direct marketing, they have to establish a brand and they have to get customers to become loyal supporters of them and their brand. And I tell you, in fact, my last podcast was about this. It was about how to develop a personal brand for your farm because farming is different than other businesses. Other businesses, when you think of brand, I mean, you think of Gillette or big companies and that's the brand, but it's not a person. Well, the defining characteristic that makes a farm a farm is the farmer. So the real successful farms that we know about there, you know, we all know Joel Salatin and his name. He's a wonderful farmer, but we know that person because he's outspoken. So the first critical success factor is after you decide all the other issues, what your product's going to be, you know, how you're going to go to market, who your customers are going to be, what your competitive uniqueness is going to be, develop your personal brand. You know, and one of the things I talk about a fair amount to people who haven't started farming, um, is I say the best time to start marketing your farm is way before you start your farm. In, in my own case, we started marketing our farm way over a year before we had any animals. Um, and I profiled many people in my podcast that have done the same thing. And the way we did that was through having a blog or a podcast to tell the story of how we're um, disconnecting from urban life, we're taking up rural life. And I know some people that have told the story of how they were, you know, I profiled one family last year that moved from New York City investment banking to rural Tennessee making um, goat's milk soap. And, and they told the whole story on their blog as they were looking for farmland in different states and the trials and tribulations. But that built them a following and a base way before um, they actually needed customers. Not to mention it gave them all kinds of SEO juice with Google because they had been writing for a year about their farm. So by the time they launched their business, they had a mature website up and they had, you know, a captive audience of customers to support them from day one. So that's the first thing. There's a lot you can do that doesn't cost you money that you can start doing intelligent marketing to build a following and a tribe to support you, you know, before you even have to lay out a dollar for the farmland or the animals. Yeah, uh, that makes a ton of sense to me. Um, earlier, you had said that when you were doing farm tours, you found that people really um, wanted to experience farming vicariously yep. through you. And um, I think in many ways, people that 
for whatever many reasons aren't going to get into farming themselves, they choose whom to buy from um, as a way to vicariously uh, be connected through that that person or that farmer. Right. So you're right. The, the the power of story is very important here. Um, and for those folks that that replicate what you did, where they you know basically started marketing for the farm in advance of actually growing anything. Um, I assume that also gives an, an ability to, to to sign up customers before you actually have your first harvest. Is that it, true? It gives you the ability to do that, you know, whether it's a CSA or a Metropolitan Buying Club or whatever. But Adam, it gives you one other really great marketing advantage. You get to do free um, market research. Let's say it's a year before um, or a year and a half before you're going to start producing product. You get to get feedback from people. Maybe they don't want another pastured poultry operation in their area, but maybe they would love to have um, chicken cuts, you know, like breast or whatever. Or maybe they would like to have certain type of cheese or a certain type of enterprise. And through them reading about what you're saying and the choices you're contemplating, you get this free research for what's missing in the market and what people are looking for. Yeah, I think that's actually really interesting. Um, you know, one thing you mentioned too about, um, you know, sort of the SEO benefit of, of writing about all this stuff before you actually have operations going on. Um, when, uh, when I was involved with the CSA, um, once we really got to the part where we were reinvigorating the marketing program they never had really done much online marketing we found that um we had very good return on uh, you know google keyword based marketing um because um you know people are doing a local search right they're typing in their zip code or their city and then then followed by grass-fed meats or pasture-raised eggs or organically grown produce or whatever um and so scoring highly on the um on the search results actually does matter well, it, it does. And of course, things change, you know, very rapidly. I mean, so the local search is more important than ever. I mean, I saw I've got I've got lessons in this academy on, you know, I mean, there's simple lessons that you can learn to do on your own. You don't need to sign up for what I've got to do this, but how to get your business listed on Yelp, how to be found on Google local searches, how to, you know, comply with Google NAP uh, and name, address and phone number uh, consistency across all platforms, those kind of things. But the, the reason, again, for the academy is while you could take any of those individual things and people could do that on their own, who's going to think about it? And so part of what I'm trying to pull together as a resource here is um, is is one um, repository, if you will, of where we will think will help you figure out what's changing with all this technology and what you need to know today. You know, and not to mention, you know, when you talk about. Um, you know, uh, the mobile implications for search results and the mobile implications for web design. This is stuff that not a lot of farmers think about, but, you know, 60-something percent of the people are hitting the websites with mobile now. So th th these are a lot of the issues I'm trying to help inform, you know, my constituency about. Yeah. And I'm curious, uh, all that's very important. How, what's the balance right now in terms of the focus you would recommend on digital versus, you know, more traditional or at least more um, real world marketing channels, um, you know, everything from farmers markets to hosting farm tours and all the other things that happen in the real world to promote a business. Everything is digital. Um, if you have a farm market and you're going to try to go there without doing some kind of digital on social media or 
instant messaging or with a messenger bot or email marketing or something to drive traffic there, then you're completely at the whim of a, you know, people showing up at the farmer's market and b choosing you uh, over someone else just on, you know, the basis of your display. Uh, so I think that you have got to have a decent grasp on all elements of digital marketing, but it doesn't mean that, you know, people have to get intimidated uh, and go like, I just can't do this stuff. I mean, I'll be the first to say that there's way too much out there. I mean, there's so many social platforms. So I don't tell people they have to be great at Pinterest and, you know, great at Twitter and great at Facebook and great at YouTube and LinkedIn and everything else, but they do need to pick a platform or two. Um, and that's where they're going to reach their customers. And then even if you pick a platform, Adam, as you know, like Facebook, I mean, I mean, the algorithms are changing all the time. I mean, the best practices are changing all the time. So where can a farmer go to keep up with what are the best practices with email marketing and open rates and subject lines and everything else? And it's a real challenge. I mean, for for any business, but it's particularly a challenge for people in farming because most of us didn't move out here to farm to be tethered to our computers learning all this technology. Right. Well, and that, that begs a question, which is, you know, as we said at the very beginning of this podcast, you know, farming is a lot of work, you know? Yeah. Um, so what, what do you think is, um, I mean, there's probably several different models that work and I guess I shouldn't try to say one's better than the other, but there's somebody like yourself who I think, you know, can, can, um, manage doing both. Um, uh, but not everybody's going to be as proficient on both sides of the fence. Um, and certainly once the operations get above a certain, um, scale, uh, you know, they require probably, you know, full-time focus from the person that's overseeing the operations. So, um, is this, I'm guessing at the beginning, at least, you want somebody to, to do their best to wear both hats. But does it make sense over time to specialize where one person's really focused on the business side of things and one's focused on operations? Or or should the main farmer always be living in both worlds? Do, do you have a perspective on that? Um, you know, farming has always been, farmers have always been very much having to wear a lot of hats. I mean, they had they have to be mechanics. They have to be carpenters. Uh, they have to be vets if they have animals, and almost all farms do. Um, and they have to be growers. I mean, they have to have all these things. And, and now you, you still have to have all those hats as a farmer that you always have. But you have to layer on top of that many elements of technology. I mean, first of all, the technology of farming has changed. I mean, there's all kinds of new methods today to farm. So you've got to know those things. But then on the business side, all the marketing stuff we just talked about. Well, in the old days, when people did commodity farming, um, you know, then they were stuck between somebody who was going to, you know, a, a co-op that was going to buy from them. And they were stuck between that person and then, you know, who was providing them with feed on the other side or seed. And that was it. When you do direct marketing, there's all these different channels and all these different decisions you have to make. So you either have to be, um, a pretty special person and have a special background and skills to be able to be comfortable with all of these decisions of both sides, or you divide it into multiple roles. Now, some people do that with a husband and wife, for example, or two partners um, that will, you know, one will focus on operations, one will focus on business and marketing. Um, others, I know some that have, you know, multiple siblings in a farm and they'll divide it that way. But you you have to get both sides done very well. So if you as the farmer feel like you don't have access to the business sides, what I'm saying, Adam, is that it's not acceptable 
that you say, well, I can't do it. I'm just a farmer. And I literally see people saying that. I'm going to focus on the growing side. I can't do this other stuff. If you want to be successful as a business, that side has to be done. So you either have to find a partner. You can get a CPA to help you with the accounting side. You can outsource your marketing to someone. But most people in farming don't have the resources to do that. So they're going to have to have someone in the family or they're going to have to bring those skills with them from their other careers or to a large extent, that's what people like me are trying to do, you know, with the Small Farm Nation Academy is, well, great, See, can we help you with those skills? Um, but even then, even with the help that I'm trying to provide, it takes time, Adam, to, to master not just these skills, but for someone to feel comfortable that they're able to go in and pitch restaurants and I know how to do the sales call or I know how to, you know, to write the copy for my website, you know, all those kind of things that they need to learn. Yeah. So, you know, if I distill what you said, it, it, it largely sounded a little bit like, um, hey, this is just the, the modern iteration of the farmer where just like he had to learn how to, you know, repair a tractor. Um, these are just base skills that uh, that every farmer you know needs to be familiar with and, and above a certain scope or scale. Yeah, maybe you get a partner that can really specialize in this stuff, but um, it's not something that you can just uh, uh you know, choose not to take on and just focus on the operating stuff as well if you want to be successful in the yeah. long term. Yeah, and I actually had to learn the opposite stuff. So I got into farming and I said, well, how do I pull a calf? So I had, right. to, learn, I had to learn how to pull calves. I had to learn how to milk cows. I found myself taking the belly pan off of a bulldozer one time and I said, what the heck am I doing under here? And it's because, well, farming doesn't necessarily have the free cash flow that's required for me to bring in a mechanic every time I need to do something. So I had to learn that side, but I always felt comfortable with the business and the marketing side. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it, everything you're saying definitely um, is consistent with my my observations with um, you know the experiences that I've had and and uh, and I came in supporting small producers largely through the same door you did and you know one uh, I think all the advice you're giving to be honest too is is really pretty universal meaning it's not just related to to small scale farms it's related to small scale entrepreneurship um, but I remember um, sitting down with a with a CSA that had gotten in, in, into trouble. Um, largely because um, it had uh, let its costs uh, get out of control and it hadn't realized that the costs were getting out of control at the time. And so, you know, I, I offered the entrepreneur, or the, the owner, um, who was a friend, I said, look, I'm happy to come by and, and, you know, help you out a little bit if I can. I've got a business background. If, uh, you know, maybe we sit down and I look at your books, I can you know, give you some suggestions about what to do. And he said, that would be excellent. If I had any books, I'm about to say if I could find the books, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not even find them if I have actually had any. And right. so that was that was business uh, priority number one. Is I, I helped him basically build the the P and L statement for his business. Um, and so yeah, it's just a, a you know a, a, an anecdote that that goes to show that um, you know a lot of farmers just uh, don't prioritize the business part. And if you don't, obviously you're you're you're. Uh, I mean, obviously if you don't have books, you're flying blind. Um, uh, but uh, you know. You, you, you can't afford to be, uh, you know, ignorant and involved in the business side of things or else it's just not going to work out. And uh, I'm glad you made the point about, um, you know, the farms often don't have enough free cash flow to be able to bring in every specialist you want. Uh, that's very true. And it's certainly very true at the beginning. Right. Uh, and uh, I've seen a lot of these businesses die pretty early on just because they run into capital, working capital right away. And, um, you know, to avoid doing that, you've got to, a, you know, keep costs as under control as, as possible. Uh, and that, that requires both, um, 
you know, some accounting skills as well as just a lot of, you know, discipline. Uh, and, and it also, um, you know, uh, the other flip side of that is, is, is getting revenues to grow as quickly as possible. And that's really the whole marketing side of things. So, right. you know, I think, I think the, the resource that you're providing is something that is widely needed in this field, um, for the existing base of, of, um, folks running farms. But what really makes me excited about it. And one of the main reasons why we're having this podcast is, I think it's a great risk reducer for people that are getting into this uh, to be able to to leverage a resource like what you've put together. And that's what gets me excited because it, going back to what drives me, I'm very passionate about local food and we're not going to have a local food community if our farmers aren't successful. And I love the farming lifestyle and I know that a lot of people are drawn to elements and aspects of this lifestyle, maybe not as full-fledged commitment to uh, the farming path that I took, but you know, they want some element of it. So helping farmers reduce that risk and become more successful, you know, is, is very, you know, exciting for me. And, you know, there's an opportunity here for, you know, all the farmers, because like I said, you know, most farms aren't focusing on these fundamental business aspects. And if I can get them focused on it, um, then I think there's a great opportunity for them to be successful in the market uh, for them to have more resiliency, which I know you and I both care a lot about, for them to live more independently and more freely. Um, and it's a beautiful lifestyle. It's way better than the lifestyle of, you know, fighting traffic and, uh, you know, and just <laughs> sitting in cubicles. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. Um, all right. Well, to, to, to make this concrete for folks, and, and I'm trying to be respectful of your time here, so we'll, we'll, we'll wind down in the next five, 10 minutes or so. But, um, uh, you know, getting back to the business plan where you talked about, uh, you know, really crystallizing your vision for the business um, and uh, how you're going to uh, position yourself out there in the market. Um, you talked uh, about having kind of your uh, your competitive differentiator, right? right. Um, so uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Um, for your cheese business, you had an artisan cheese business, uh, had or have an artisan cheese business? I had an artisan cheese business that we sold. Okay. So when you started that, um, what was your competitive differentiator? Great question. So when, when, um, when I started making artisan cheese, um, the, one of the first questions you got to a- answer is what kind of cheese am I going to make? And I made, a, I made a bunch of cheeses to try to figure out what I wanted to make everything from camembert to a variety of blue cheeses to Gruyere to, you know, cheddars and goudas and everything else. In the end, what I decided to make uh, and specialize in um, was a Gruyere cheese that was aged 8 to 11 months, a cloth-bound cheddar cheese that was aged about 10 to 11 months, and a blue cheese that was aged uh, about 6 months. And they were all raw milk cheeses. Th- the competitive advantage and the differentiator is um, to be able to focus on those cheeses. Uh, if so, Let's say somebody new wants to come to market and make those kind of cheeses. You have to milk your cows today if you're using cow's milk. And and be comfortable with the fact that you're not going to get paid for that milk for almost a year. So that's a year's worth of buying feed if you're buying feed, milking cows, paying the labor, um, paying for any of your cheese equipment and supplies, uh, paying for your uh, your refrigerators if you're running cheese caves or however you're doing the um, the. Uh, uh, the environmental controls for your cheese, uh, all the capital that you've got to put in for your cheese vat, for your tables, for your molds, everything else, um, you won't get paid back anything for a year. And the, the the defensible advantage is if somebody else wants to come in and make a Gruyere style cheese that's local, 
Well, okay, first of all, I've got a year head start on you. And secondly, most people aren't going to do that because they don't have the financial resources to absorb that delayed cash flow. So that was number one. And number two, once we started making those cheeses, I started entering into competition. So um, the Gruyere cheese had won awards in the United States and South Africa and in England um, in, in the American Cheese Society and in the other competitions. The blue cheese won awards um, in the United States Cheese Championship. So once you start getting that kind of attention for some of your products, um, that gives you another layer of defensibility, and that gets you attention with distributors, with retailers like Whole Foods and Kroger, which is where we ended up selling those cheeses. And to take it full circle, um, Adam, in the end, when we sold that business, it's one of the ways that you're able to have an exit strategy and sell that business because there was another couple uh, that really wanted the cheese business, and we had the recipes, we had the contracts with distributors, um, we had the awards, um, and it was easy for me to hand that business off to somebody else who wanted to take that and make it much larger than we wanted to take at the time. Oh, okay, great. And just uh, well, kudos to you, but also it's a very concrete example of sort of what you meant about really picking your niche, why you pick it, and um, and uh, and once you've lined all those things up, how success can can follow through from that. Um, yeah, because with, because with cheese making, for example, what most people do, I, ha I had many cheesemongers tell me, uh, if I see another new chev on the market, <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> see it because because that's what happens when you start with, uh, you know, you milk some goats, you make chev, you can you can flip your cash flow in a few days, type of thing, or. Just as commonly, people start with chickens. I'm going to uh, do meat chickens with some chicken tractors, and you know, six weeks later or eight weeks later, you know, I'm flipping cash flow. Well, that's true. Uh, you can you can flip cash flow quick with those, but your barriers to entry are very low for those businesses. So therefore, somebody else can come in and replicate your success overnight. Right, right. Well, your business, as you described it, is a great example of a business with a good moat, right? Where you know somebody needed to invest a year before they could actually you know begin challenging you. Right. Um, you had mentioned uh, as we were preparing for the podcast um, that you had uh, some lessons learned, not even just on the marketing side, but but um, say like on the insurance side um, that you found was uh, very helpful to impart to new uh, new farmers. Um, is there anything about that you wanted to say? Well, you know, farming is unique from other businesses from a liability point of view. I mean, if you run any business, you know, you might have some kind of lawsuit or whatever. But when you have a farm, your your business and your personal life are located at one in the same place. So you're doing farm tours, as you, you know, we've talked about earlier. Somebody's coming onto your property. So it's really important that, you know, you do the obvious basics. You know, you set up, you know, separation of liability with an LLC at a minimum, but also you get the right insurance in place so that you have layers of protection to, to isolate your personal assets from the business. Now, to anybody listening to this who's got a business acumen, of course, this makes sense. But I'm telling you, in the farming world, I've seen a lot of sole proprietorships which may make sense in the commodity farming world, but in direct marketing, it's a huge risk that there's no separation of assets between uh, the personal assets and their business. In the cheese business that I had, for example, Adam, the cheese facility um, was on the same property. So therefore, you know, I, I as an individual own that, but we leased that to the LLC that was my farm. And so there's a clear relationship between the farm business and it's paying for that facility that it uses to operate a cheese business. You know, things like that is what I'm talking about in terms of a setting up your business the right way. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that you've, you've highlighted that. Uh, you know, my my observations have been that um, for for a variety of reasons, many of which are very understandable, um, but people that are 
starting out at the beginning uh, with a small farm. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of trying to fly under the radar about a lot of things uh, before you can perhaps afford um, to be able to do things, you know, fully at code or, or get the right permits in your county or whatever. And, um, you know, sometimes these small farms are, are, are doing it for those reasons, or sometimes they're doing it, as you said earlier, because they just don't know any better. But um, the, the point is, is that they are, uh, their vulnerability is a lot higher early on um, to, you know, the, the downside of, of making a mistake or getting caught or having somebody, you know, break their leg on your property during a farm tour or whatnot. Uh, is a lot higher if you don't have those safeguards and structures in place beforehand. So um, it is, you know, even advice on some of the uh, insurance uh, elements or at least liability mitigation um, elements that you just talked about. Um, can people learn some of those through the Small Farm Nation Academy as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, one of the things that I do once a month is I have a different mastermind interview with an expert uh, in some area that relates to a farm business. And the one I did this past month was, was on food law. So it was all the liability that relates to food and farming. It's an hour-long um, interview that's available to the members of the academy. You know, and, and another reason, you know, why farms may not, you know, get the right protection and kind of do it on the on the low is because sometimes it's just obscure. They're not sure what to do, particularly in the area of things like raw milk or, you know, uh, processing chickens on farm. Can I do that? The regulations say I can. Some state regulations say I can't. I can't get a straight answer from my authorities. You know, Georgia is a state, for example, where it's very clear what the sale of raw milk is. You can't sell it for human consumption, but any farmer such as myself can sell it legally as pet food. So, all you do uh, at the time I was doing this a few years ago, uh, you get a, I think it was like 75 or $100 you pay for a license to the Department of Ag and you get your permit to sell pet food. Then all I have to do is put a label on the gallon of milk that says uh, uh, pet food, not for human consumption. And I can sell it to anyone. I don't have to ask them if their pet drinks it. And we all know what happens, right? Mm -hmm. but, be but because of that and because of me following the letter of the law, my insurance provider threatened to drop me and they weren't going to cover me anymore for my farm, for my cheese business or my product liability because I sold raw milk, even though I was completely in accordance with the law. So I dropped the raw milk and I said, okay, I'll just sell the cheese. And it's those kind of issues that farmers run into all the time, everywhere. You would think it would be clear, cut and dry answers, but it's not. And that's one of the reasons why I'm glad we have a community that's developing inside the academy so we can kind of figure these issues out. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, in closing here, Tim, um, I just want to express my, um, my, my strong endorsement for what you're, the mission here behind what you're doing. And again, I've, I've, I've said, I've, I've, uh, I've seen this firsthand, you know, I'm on the board of, uh, an organization in my County that supports all the small producers and, um, you know, the, uh, the need for this type of business acumen, um, the need for, you know, really understanding, uh, you know, the changing world, especially what's happening on the digital side, um, is, is great. And I think is, is highly, uh, under highly, um, uh, highly little understood. There's probably a better way to say that, but it's, right. it's, uh, it, it's, it's an area of where, uh, I guess the awareness is low. It's probably a better way to say it amongst, uh, you know, a lot of these farmers, uh, and the desire to learn it is there. Um, but it's really just getting that guidance. And it sounds like, you know, in the little bit that I've seen of, of, uh, the, the small farm nation Academy, and you've been kind enough to give me a pass into the, 
into the past the velvet rope there to see what's going on. Um, it seems like it's a, a really constructive and rich um, and and structured, which I think is really important um, learning environment for these folks. So um, for for people that are either current farmers or thinking seriously about getting into this, who want to learn more about your curriculum and your work and what's going on at the academy, um, where should they go? Uh, well, thank you very much for saying all that, Adam. And they should go to smallfarmnation.com slash academy. And, you know, and you, you, you said earlier that most of what I'm talking about is applicable to any small business. And you're right. We even have people in the academy that are landscapers and pest control or whatever. And it's the same principles for anyone. Uh, so <laughs> everyone is welcome. All right. Well, Tim, I, I wish you the best on, on growing the academy and continuing to uh, to enable farmers around the country and, and perhaps hopefully worldwide at some point. Love to have you back on here again in the future at some point in time if you're up for that. And again, just thank you for your time today. Thank you uh, to both you and to Chris. You guys are doing great and very important work, and I really appreciate it. So keep it up. Thanks.